Ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirt, ain't got no sweater, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no bed, ain't got no mind. You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on March 8th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Rude Awakenings. Live music was performed by Taylor Vidic. Ain't got no token, ain't got no God. Oh, but what have I got? Why am I alive anyway? Oh, what have I got? They'll never take away. Let's welcome our first speaker. And uh, I do want to stress again that they do write their own bios, okay? Laura Kurt. Her name is Laura. That's all I can think of. Okay, so where is that on the lame meter, really? (laughs) Laura is a longtime Junoite who looks for the joy and humor in life. She has had many adventures in Alaska and in her life, and so far she has survived them all. Laura, please join us. I was in my 20s and dating a guy by the name of John. He invited me on a hunting trip with his friend Scott. Now this first trip I went on with them, I found out that bringing dish soap to a hunting trip is a mortal sin. I mean, you would have thought I had brought moonshine to a temperance rally. Not that they overreacted or anything, but they decided to forgive my evil ways and invited me on a second trip. This time, Dave joined us. We arrived at the Forest Service cabin a day later than we had planned because a blizzard had dumped a ton of snow. And our first attempt at hunting wasn't very successful because the snow was waist deep, and in the afternoon it started raining. That night, between the hands of cribbage, we did go out and check things because, you know, well, we weren't overreacting or anything but we knew pretty soon after the creek overflowed its banks. That's when we decided that we didn't want to overreact, but we were going to go get that skiff that's down by the lake edge and drag it up to the cabin, just in case. Dave went to go do that, but he returned only seconds later because it was already too late. Not only had the creek overflowed its banks, so had the lake, and we were in a flood. But the cabin was on slightly higher ground, and on pilings, and how deep could the water get? It could get really deep. (laughs) It wasn't too much later that you could have found me standing in the cabin with the water more than halfway up my extra tufts. And we were moving the last of our items up to the loft as quickly as we could when I smelled gas. We looked down to see a sheen of gasoline spreading across the water 
and automatically we all turned and looked at the wood stove. <laughs> we were in so much trouble. Evidently, someone who'd been to the cabin before us had lost the cap to their gas tank, and they decided it'd be a good idea to replace the cap with a wee bit of foil and leave it under the cabin. Now, I saw that we had two options. One, stay in the cabin, which was going to be you know, in about 10 minutes flambe, or jump into the floodwaters, which were between three and four feet deep outside, and try and make it to high ground where we would stay soaking wet and try and survive the night. In other words, I had a choice. I could die really hot or really cold. <laughs> Just then, Scott said, dish soap sinks gas. Well, yeah, I had brought the dish soap again. <laughs> and I saved four lives that night. You are looking at a hero here. Well, there's not enough time to tell you everything that happened that night and about the things that went bump in the night. But suffice to say that it was 4.30 in the morning before we finally were able to relax a bit, before things had slowed down enough and calmed down enough that we thought we could get some sleep before the next rude awakening, which happened two and a half hours later when Scott woke us up telling us that the cabin was tilted. <laughs> okay, Forest Service cabins aren't exactly attached to the ground in a way that I would have expected, and the front was floating. The back was still hooked up on something. But all this meant that during the night when we were sleeping, that cabin, if the back had let go, could have floated out onto the lake, <laughs> rolled over, and drowned us all. And actually, it still could. And that's where we stayed for the next couple of days, in a cabin half submerged in water, tilted, hoping the back would hold on, and with a great big yellow help help sign about seven feet long that we put up to attract the rescuers who never came. <laughs> and it was during this time that it happened. John proposed. <laughs> he asked me to marry him. Now, some people might think it was a rude awakening for me a week later when we were finally back in town and safe and sound when he took it back. But my mama didn't raise no fool. And I know there are at least three situations where you really should not trust what a man says. One, of course, is when he's been drinking. The second, of course, is when he's naked, or you are. And the third is when his life is or is about to be in peril. For some reason, it's a known phenomenon that young men whose life is in danger will suddenly decide, gee, I need to find a mate and procreate. <laughs> As a woman, I don't understand this at all. I can tell you every time my life has been in danger, I have never thought, gee, I wish I was pregnant and let's plan a wedding. <laughs> but I did have a rude awakening when I got back to town and found out that these convergence of these two storms had hit town hard too. There had been flooding in town, there had been mudslides in town, there had been all sorts of problems, and yet very few people had actually thought of us out there in this cabin. And those that did, and who thought, yeah, maybe someone should go check on them, did nothing about it. And it got me thinking, when I was thinking about this story, that 
Our society spends a lot of effort telling people they shouldn't overreact. We tell our family, we tell our friends, we tell our kids not to overreact. But I'm thinking maybe we ought to teach our kids not to underreact. <laughs> because overreacting might be an embarrassment, but underreacting could kill you. <laughs> or me. Thank you. Our next speaker is Tom Waldo. Tom is an environmental lawyer and has lived in Juneau for 27 years. He and his wife have two grown sons who are making it on their own in the lower 48. Tom loves skiing, snowboarding, hiking, running, and kayaking around Juneau. He rides his bike to work every day and always wears a helmet. Please welcome Tom to the stage. Are you okay? Hey, are you okay? That's what I heard as I was rudely awakened by two guys shaking me. I found myself lying in the middle of a street next to a twisted bicycle, which I had apparently crashed. There were a couple bags of belongings scattered all around me, like a yard sale. I was dazed, but I sat up and I said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. They fell for it. They <laughs> They, they helped me out of the street. They got my bike and my belongings out of the street for me. I thanked them. And it was only as they were driving away that the strange fact dawned on me that we had been speaking to each other in Swedish. Since when do I speak Swedish? Where am I? Complete blank. So I just sat there on that grassy street corner for a long time trying to get my bearings. This was way before Google Maps or cell phones or any technology that might help. I mean, this was before bike helmets. <laughs> so I just sat there and I looked slowly up and down the street. I looked at each of the houses one by one, no memory. I read the street names on the street crossing signs, Swedish, but still nothing. Despite all the evidence, I started to have this feeling that I just, I didn't think I was in Sweden. It, it didn't make any sense, but I started, I, I, I came to believe that I was in a town called Mariaham. Mariaham is the capital of the Oland Islands, which are a little Swedish-speaking province of Finland out in the middle of the Baltic Sea. Well, this just raised more questions than it answered. <laughs> what makes me think I'm in the Oland Islands? <laughs> Whoever heard of the Oland Islands? I still don't know how I learned Swedish, but finally something came to me. Neptunigatan Femtitvo Bay. Neptunigatan Femtitvo Bay. It was an address. 52B Neptune Street. It, it sounds better in Swedish. Um, I knew it was somewhere in Mariaham. 
I had no idea what I would find there, but it was all I had to go on, so I set out in search of it. My bike was a total loss, so I just left it. But Mariaham is a pretty small town, so after maybe 20 minutes of walking, I found the address. It turned out to be a hotel, a small hotel called the Yesthem Kronan, and I had another fragment of memory. I was married to a gal named Anitra, and I, I had a good feeling that she was at this hotel. <laughs> she would be able to clear everything up. So with new optimism, I marched up to the front door and I knocked. It was a hotel. I don't know why I didn't just walk in, but I knocked and a woman came to the door. Not Anitra, but an older woman. And when she saw me, she went <gasps> I hadn't been focusing on my appearance. I had blood and gravel ground into the abrasions on my face. My hair was matted. My shirt was torn. My pants were torn. Still, her reaction caught me by surprise, which I really didn't need just then. But uh, I, I soldiered on and started trying to explain. The problem was, I wasn't firing on all cylinders, and I still didn't know what was going on myself. I discovered my Swedish wasn't actually very good, so I'm floundering, I'm not making any sense. This poor woman is looking at me like I just crawled out of the grave, but finally I managed to say, and I think my wife might be here. Her name is Anitra. Immediately, without taking her eyes off me, she bellowed, Anitra! I learned later that she was the proprietor of the hotel, and Anitra was trying to make a good first impression because it was Anitra's first day at her new job at the hotel. <laughs> So it was just a few more seconds, and to my huge relief, Anitra appeared at the door. She went, <gasps> but she confessed that, yes, the man bleeding on the doorstep and babbling nonsense in bad Swedish was her husband. They let me in the hotel and laid me down in one of the beds where Anitra started treating my wounds and helping me reconstruct my memories. I learned that Anitra and I had been married for less than a year and had spent that time in a Swedish-speaking community in a different part of Finland, which is where we had picked up the language. We had decided to spend our summer in the Åland Islands and so had moved out to Mariaham just the day before my crash. My theory about why I remembered the address of that hotel is that we had figured out that the cheapest way to move all our stuff out to Mariaham was to mail it in boxes. So I had written down the ad, that address a bunch of times on mailing labels just two or three days earlier. That was 1985. Anitra and I haven't been back to Olan since that summer, but we're going back later this year. So, we looked up the Yestem Kronan, Anitra's hotel. It's still a popular place to stay in Mariaham, 
and they offer one service they didn't have 32 years ago. They now rent bikes. <laughs> and the price includes a helmet. Thank you. Okay, third up on our list this evening is Marissa Capito. Uh, five things you need to know about Marissa. One, she'll gladly cook you dinner anytime, but selfishly hopes you won't eat it all so she can have the leftovers. Two, daydreaming is her unintentional hobby. Three, while she has grand ambition of being a skilled outdoors woman, the wilderness can be very spooky. Her secret dream is to be able to sing like a gospel singer. And five, her other secret dream is to be a flamenco dancer. So please, welcome Marissa. In 2013, I had just finished my master's degree in environmental engineering. And I was offered a volunteer position with an international nonprofit in Cambodia. It was a wastewater treatment project, three-month gig. I was really excited about it. It was field work based. I was going to be in small communities solving the sanitation problems of this country. And in order to get over there, to be able to afford to get over there, I had to crowdfund, which was a very awkward experience for me that I'll kind of dig into later. So, I definitely had a bit of a savior mentality going into it, like, I'm gonna use my education for good and really make a difference and have a positive impact on the world. But what ended up happening, rude awakening number one, was a whole lot of nothing. And by nothing, I mean I sat in an air-conditioned office in Phnom Penh and edited PowerPoints and grant applications for grammar. And there's a lot of reasons why things panned out the way they did. It's really neither here nor there at this point, and I kind of say this nonchalantly. But in the moment, and for a very long time afterwards, I was consumed with feelings of guilt, of shame, and of failure. Because it, I wasn't just not meeting my own goals and expectations. I felt I had failed my donors, the people that gave me money to be here. So when I came back to Juno, I didn't really talk about this part of the trip very much. If anybody here has heard me talk about Cambodia, you've probably heard more of an anecdotal story or like, yeah, I went over there, things didn't work out so well, it was frustrating. And I couldn't talk about these deeper, darker things that had happened because I was so embarrassed and ashamed. And after years, years, everyone, of self-reflection, I came to realize that it wasn't a failure, the trip had an incredible amount of value, but I kind of set myself up for this. And a lot of that had to do with the expectations I set for myself. Expectation management is something I struggle with on a daily basis. And so while I was in Cambodia, expectations were way up here. I'm gonna solve the problems. And when it became clear that I would not be solving this country's wastewater treatment issues, I became fixated on, well, I have to do something. I, I'm here. I have to prove to my donors and to myself that it, 
was worth it to send me here. Which led me to the very uncomfortable question of, who am I doing this for? Because right now, it kind of sounds like I'm doing it for me and not the people I came here to help. And so then I started to really think about, were my expectations even realistic? And a funny thing happens when you're in a foreign country and you're alone and you don't speak any of the language. You can't talk. And so you spend a lot of time observing. And through that observation, I had a moment of clarity. So the Khmer Rouge was a communist, or, yeah, communist regime that ruled Cambodia for a long time. In the 60s and 70s, they murdered two million people, over a quarter of the country's population. So when you look into the eyes of a Cambodian who's over the age of 40, you are looking into the eyes of somebody that survived a genocide. That, that was so humbling. And once, once I kind of realized that and slowed down and started to observe more, I was able to see how complicated this country was and how complicated their history was and how could I possibly expect to have the expectations way up here. But I was so fixated on proving something to myself and to all of these other people that when the roadblocks came along, I couldn't adjust those expectations, and I couldn't adapt to them. And it wasn't until after all of these years of reflection that I really started to understand that. And what Cambodia gave me was an incredible lesson in empathy, not just for another country to go and observe it and see how it works and understand what these people go through, but empathy for myself, too to be kinder to myself, and to not pass so much judgment. And you guys, I'm Italian. Passing judgment or being judgmental and argumentative is like a national pastime for us. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not a skill set that comes naturally. And as cliche as it is, I hate these cliches, but they're so true. Getting out of your comfort zone and getting yourself to ask these really tough questions is some of the most valuable and rewarding experiences that you can have. Thank you. Our next speaker tonight is Houston Laws. Houston is an ultra-marathon runner who has completed six 100-mile races in Alaska, the sixth running the Klondike solo. He ran his own business running other people's dogs out in remote areas of Juneau. Please welcome Houston to the stage. Hi, my name is Houston, and I was the one who fell through Mendenhall Lake. Funny enough, I was taking a friend out for her first time to show her how safe the lake was. <laughs> uh, I like running a lot, and uh, the Mendenhall Lake during the winter months are one of my favorite locations for winter and distance training. Days and nights, putting in 20 to 30 miles at a time, I'm comfortable with that area. That day on Sunday, 
clear blue sky, it's crisp, you know, air. People are bundled up, there's a lot of people out. Take my friend and we grab the dogs and we head out on the Mindenhall Glacier ice and uh, following the same path that, you know, a herd of people are in front of us, following that same path straight to the base of the glacier. As um, we get closer, people are spreading out, taking photos and hiking around. We pass a young mother and her child and uh, we say hi, do a greeting, and keep walking. And 10 yards ahead of us is another lady dressed in a full parka outfit. And she is standing really still and like petrified. And I was thinking, well, dogs are running around her, barking at her. I'm sure she's afraid of dogs. And, and um, I'm going to have to go wrangle them up. So I walk forward and I find, I feel water seeping into my shoes, and now that cold water is rising up my legs, slowly. And I look down and I notice, all of a sudden, I notice I'm on an ice slab the size of a coffee table, descending elevator speed <laughs> into Mendenhall, you know, lagoon. <laughs> and I feel so helpless, and all I can think of, how much this sucks. <laughs> As, uh, yeah, I mean, I have to balance on this slab of ice or I can plunge right in and get lost underneath the ice. And I could just, I just have to ride this out. And uh, I can feel, you know, everything getting numb. It's cold and, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> so I get to the chest level and I become buoyant and I'm kind of relieved, like, oh, all right, well, this is, you know... Yeah, I get a relief there for a second, and then instantly I just a sense of urgency, you know, and panic kind of like stepping up here, you know, just this second now. <laughs> Very similar. Urgency, panic hits me, and I'm just like, I have to refocus. What's my next step? Is um, paddling to the edge of the ice. And so as I get to the edge of the ice, I again get hit with the second thought of doom is if that ice keeps breaking as I attempt to crawl out, am I going to you know, exhaust myself so much and, and get hypothermic and you know, could be tragic to get, and I just can't get myself out. But I refocus, what's my next step? And that is to extend my arms out onto the ice, bring my chest up, flatten my body as best I can, and I roll out away from the ice and relieved and embarrassed. Uh, I grab the dogs and I connect with my friend and I'm like, we're, we're ready to go. We're getting out of here. <laughs> like, I hope no one saw that because we're going. <laughs> like, I'm all right, I'm out. And I look and the lady now in the parka is walking directly towards the thin ice hole that I just created. And I hand off the dogs to my friend, and I wave like I'm a, you know, a traffic controller, and I'm yelling, stop, stop yelling at her, and just waving my arms. And the mother behind me says, that's my mother, she doesn't speak English. And I was like, ah, oh. I'm so tired, and I'm cold, and now I feel so helpless, like, that was a language barrier. And experiencing that helplessness of, like, going through that water and going in that ice, going through the, you know, going in the ice and then just seeing someone possibly do the same thing and you have no control over it. I was just like, 
I yell at the mother, a young, young mother, and I said, tell her to stop. So there's a hole in front of her. And I realize also we're setting her up for failure because I'm waving like a welcome sign <laughs> as she's walking towards me towards the hole, you know, and I was, well, so I'm gonna relocate. So I, I shuffle around the hole and kind of spot maybe a you know, more solid, stable pathway. And all I can do is just stand there, can't get any closer, with the risk of me falling in, but trying to extend my arm out as far as I can and just hoping our hands make contact. And it did, we pulled each other, pulled her you know, in, gave her a big hug, and, and it felt good. You know, it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> and they, I was asked what kind of lesson maybe I might have learned from it. And I said, well, I'm not going to not go to the glacier anymore. I'm going to go to the lake again. But what I felt is we get desensitized and we call, you know, our, this is Juno's backyard and we love to adventure and challenge ourselves. But, you know, our backyard is Alaska. It's different and it's potentially, you know, it can take your life and it has taken friends' lives as well. It's risky. And I think having that appreciation it may be a new location or maybe a regular visited spot, but it's still Alaska and it still should be respected and every day should be considered, you know, conditions change every day and that should be always respected. So thank you for your time. Hope Francis strong, those kids are great. Hope she cooks you dinner and even knows how to bake. I like my tacos in my... You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on March 8, 2017 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Rude Awakenings. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. I could be yours. You could be my... Maybe next time. Let's get on with our fifth speaker this evening, Jenny John. Jenny grew up in Portland, Oregon, a midwife by trade. Jenny's passion for women's health care has presented her with many opportunities, including providing care in jungle clinics in Nicaragua, opening a birth center in Oaxaca, and practicing at the busiest birth center in the United States in El Paso, Texas four blocks off the U.S.-Mexico border slash wall. <laughs> Jenny speaks Spanish, can't say no to sugar, and dreams of living in lands with just one season hot. In spite of this dream, Jenny moved to Juneau with her wife in 2015. Jenny enjoys the water, spending time with her family and friends who have become family. She has never seen a bear in Juneau, and despite all the photographic evidence is beginning to believe that bears do not actually exist in Juno. Oh, Jenny, beware what you ask for. Please welcome Jenny John. Picture it. Oregon, 1974. Two pot-headed teenagers waddle into a county hospital to have their very first child, two days after Christmas, eight months after their wedding. 
and after the usual hours of labor, they have a daughter. And then there's a declaration, and the doctor says, there's another one in there. To which my mother said, no, there isn't. <laughs> and seven minutes later, they had their second surprise child. That's me. My twin sister and I grew up what I think was a normal childhood because it was normal to us. People would ask us, do you like being twins? Which was always weird because we had always been twins. We were womb mates. She was there, I was there, we were always there. We had never not been twins. Do you like not being a twin? It was a weird question to us. The next question that people always ask us is, can you read each other's minds? So we say yes. I can tell you right now that the animal she's thinking of is a penguin, and she will tell you that the number I'm thinking of is five, even though we haven't seen each other for a couple of years. Like my parents, my sister got married young at 19. I waited till the ripe old age of 22 to get married. But we had babies at the same time, and we began raising them together. And it was a seamless, beautiful relationship. And the three-hour drive from each other's houses just was commonplace, and we would do it all the time. We would often call each other and say, see you in three, which means we're on our way over, so get ready. And with both of us homeschooling, it was easy to do. Our children were very fond of each other also. And her kids and my kids, we call the other adults Aunt Mama because we were raising our children together. And then something changed, and I wasn't quite sure what it was. I thought that we were just growing and developing more adult ideas, and they didn't quite mesh, and it was unnoticeable to the outside, but there was just something I couldn't put my finger on. My marriage was stretched in that we had three babies in three years. Yes, I was tired. <laughs> But I, I really, really enjoyed it, and it was wonderful, and I loved it. I loved being a mother. And the sideways glances, I just ignored those. And the long hours that my husband was working were justified because he was providing for the family, and that's what you do. And, and so I just thought that we would work through whatever this was. This was life. That's what we were doing. It wasn't until we moved out of the country to Mexico to do some mission work that I learned that my husband had been having an affair. And it really was hard because I didn't know who it was until the phone rang one day and that lifelong familiar voice of my twin sister said, Jen, I am so sorry. Yeah. My husband filed for surprise secret divorce and made sure that the papers were delivered to me while I was at my busy birth center in front of all of my clients. And I was completely devastated because my husband was gone and the person that I would talk to about it was gone. And all of a sudden, everything became really, really clear, but really, really dark. But my rude awakening actually happened because I met this girl. And although the divorce was already there, my family and his family jumped on that to make sure that our now four children didn't get to spend as much time with me as they should. And I started to go into a deep catatonic-like pit every once in a while. And my mind would bounce between being a divorcee and losing my children and losing my twin sister. 
But people don't live in pits like this. They die in pits like this. And so something had to change. So we packed up and moved to Juneau, and we got married. And it was then that I noticed that I was allowed, deserved to have some happiness despite the shroud of sadness that was around me all the time. And all through this, throughout all of this, I just couldn't shake the feeling of having lost my twin sister. There is something about having someone who has developed at the same time as you, who is formed at the same time you were, that our hearts began beating at the same time and our fingerprints were formed in the same moments together. You just can't shake that, even if they've made a catastrophic mistake and had an affair with your husband. The difference between forgiveness and reconciliation is with forgiveness, you can forgive that person and you can move on. With reconciliation, you have to face that person and you have to face all of the stuff that goes along with all of that stuff. I am really hoping for reconciliation. I may have to settle for forgiveness. Thank you. Our next speaker is John Neary. John met his wife, Judy, in Juneau office of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Alaska in 1984, when he was applying to be a big. Judy was assigned to check his references. They were married a few years later, which is a lesson in taking your reference checks seriously. <laughs> they needed some adventure on their honeymoon and so joined the Peace Corps. Landing in Rwanda, in the heart of Africa in 1989. His story is based on that experience. Please welcome John to the stage. Recently, a friend of mine came up to me and said, John, we're going to Rwanda. I'd like to hear some stories from you. It prompted my wife, Judy, to go into our attic space to find the old slides and the slide projector. You remember those things, right? We set it up in the living room and found a piece of white wall to watch our lives from 27 years earlier. And you know, the images were like chunk, beautiful forest scene, large green trees, chunk, a colobus monkey leaping from one tree to another, chunk. Judy with a crowd of very dark-skinned people uh, at an agroforestry conference where she was doing environmental education work. So I was working building trails in the rainforest. That was my job as a Peace Corps volunteer. I loved it. I loved every second of it. I fell in love with that rainforest the same way I fell in love with Admiralty Island in my career there, building trails and doing other things. And, and so it was also interesting when we got to that next slide, chick chunk and we saw me standing next to Katie and Jean-Baptiste. Katie was our best friend in Rwanda. She was a Peace Corps volunteer who had just ended her service, but she stayed on with the project, Projet Conservation de la Forêt Nyungwe, which was about 
preserving a forest through tourism. And she stayed on as, as an employee and advisor, and she was our best friend. She told us all kinds of great things about the job and about Rwandan culture, because she had a boyfriend who was a Rwandan Tutsi. He was the other guy standing right next to her in the photo, a tall, dark man. Maybe you've heard about Tutsi people. Sean was one of them. But he was Katie's boyfriend to us. And when they were visiting us uh, in September of 1990, we were taking trips into the forest to see monkeys, to hike trails, to have a good time. And it was odd when we got a call that night from our assistant project director, also a Tutsi, that she'd just been arrested and thrown in prison. Upon hearing that, John turned on our shortwave radio, Jean-Baptiste, and for the next several days, he had his ear glued to BBC, Radio Deutsche Welle, Radio Milkolin, the National Radio Rwanda, as reports came of soldiers streaming across the north border from Uganda, intent on toppling the Hutu government. These were people that had been forced out of the country 25 years earlier. I had no idea about that history, really, because if we had been able to Google Rwanda in those days, it would have come up with Rwanda, land of 10,000 hills, or it might have come up with Rwanda, the Switzerland of Africa. But it didn't say anything much about the, the racial tension strife between these different tribes of people. Anyway, we quickly found ourselves in this very strange situation with our assistant project director in prison, our project director and his government counterparts in Uganda not able to come back into the country, and I was thrust in charge of a fairly large project with many employees and a, an office and vehicles and all this, and we had to figure out what was going on around us because we were relying on reports from Jean-Baptiste, who's listening to the radio. At one point he said that a thousand people had been rounded up and put up in a stadium in Kigali. He said the last time this happened, 25 years earlier, they were all shot and their bodies ended up in a big hole in the south of the country. That night, we got a call from our Peace Corps director. He said, shots had been fired in this capital city, but we should just hang tight. It'll probably all blow over in a couple days. Sean kept his ear glued to the radio. There are other stories about the rebels had infiltrated all the way over to Akagari Park and that thousands of civilians had been killed in, in the ensuing battle. I and Judy, John, Katie, we were all trapped in the house. It was a national state of emergency. We weren't supposed to leave, but we had to eat. Multiple days were passing. One day I went out to get some food, went down the road in front of our house, a busy road. When I got down to the corner, I met the military guards there, and they stopped me and checked my papers. I didn't have the right papers to circulate, apparently. They confiscated the motorcycle. Well, that was, you know, not so good, but as I was walking back home, I noticed a crowd of people fanning out across the fields with pipes and sticks in their hand, and they were chasing a man. I ducked into our gate, locked the bolt. Our guard, our night guard, came out and talked to me, and he said that they were chasing a Tutsi man. Things were getting really out of hand. Jean-Baptiste was spending every night in our attic, he was afraid, of course. Katie was afraid for him. We were wondering just what to do here. We were wondering when the knock at the gate would come. We felt like we were hiding Jews from the Nazis. But what could we do, really? And I really remember that moment when the knock on the gate did come. Because I could see below the gate, it didn't quite go all to the ground. I could see the black shiny boots. So I stepped out into the front yard and opened the really cold steel bolt of that gate and swung it in. 
In walked four soldiers, AK-47s, uniforms, one short guy next to him in a brightly colored shirt with the party emblem, MRDND on it, that's the political office. He was very polite. We all stood around in a circle in the front yard. Judy came out to join us at that point. They were very politely asking us how we were getting along, you know, did we have enough to eat, you know, sorry for this national state of emergency, very polite sort of inquiry, but gradually inquiring about exactly who was in our house. And I, at that point, had no idea if Jean-Baptiste had decided to stand his ground and declare his innocence in front of this inquiry, or if he was heading out the back door down the hill towards the Congo. I had no idea because he had formed all kinds of escape plans for multiple days prior, right? But at the same time, we're standing in this circle and the tension is building. Our night guard comes out. They, they inquire very closely of him about his paperwork for circulating around the town. He didn't have the right paperwork. They told him he better go down to the office of the next day. The tension's really building because I know who's coming next, who they're going to ask for next. But right then, I let out a very big <laughs> One of the things that Katie told us never happens in Rwanda, one of those cultural tips is you never fart in public. <laughs> and, and I know that it's not good to fart in America in public. I know that part, right? But still, if it happens, people smile and they go, ah, okay, it's just John. But this doesn't happen in Rwanda. I looked across the, the circle. One of those soldiers was turning white. <laughs> he turned to the short guy who was looking awkwardly back at him as if to say, is this guy for real? <laughs> Did I just hear what I just heard? Judy was giving me one of those looks. Well, all the guys in the audience know the look she was giving me. <laughs> but it broke the tension. They all awkwardly left the front yard. <laughs> I closed the bolt on the gate with a sigh. Walked back in the house. Jean-Baptiste was standing there. He inquired carefully of what had happened. I explained. Minutes later, we got a call from the Peace Corps director. He said voluntary evacuation orders had been issued for all Americans in Rwanda. We were to leave the next day. We went into panic mode, packing the household. Uh, again, responsible for not only all of our household items, but also the things in the project. We had vehicles, we had equipment, we had ledgers, we had all kinds of stuff to pack. We were, our plan was to leave really early in the next morning, and we did. We had the car packed with all this stuff, a tarp over it, Jean-Baptiste hidden under it in the back. 4.30 in the morning, we drive down the front road. Fortunately, the guys at the military blockade all had too much banana beer the night before. They just waved us by. We left town. As we got up towards the forest, which is about a half hour drive, twilight was just happening. The fog was drifting across from the tea plantation. It, it all seemed so normal, so beautiful, like in those slides. Our plan was that Jean-Baptiste would hook up with a couple of trail guides and head down towards Burundi. But he actually didn't. What we did was leave him behind with that plan. We ended up two days later in America. He had changed his mind, actually. We found out much later. He made his way back to his village with his family. And he survived just fine. But three years later, in April of 1994, that terrible thing happened in Rwanda. Within 100 days, 800,000 people were hacked up by their neighbors with machetes. 
He was not one of them. He was in the Hotel Mio Colleen. You might know it as the Hotel Rwanda. He was one of those survivors. So ultimately, this is a story about survival. But right now, if you were to Google Rwanda, you would get Rwanda, and the first name would be genocide at the end of it. I found that very sad and compelling, and I'm still trying to figure out what to make of it, honestly. These people that I knew as neighbors, this place I knew as beautiful, how could neighbors kill each other? I've been back to Africa 13 times trying to figure this out. What is it about this place, this continent, that keeps pulling me back? I don't know, because I can't explain it. It's unanswerable, isn't it? What this is, this, this thing, this love, this hate, that causes people to blame one small segment of society for all their problems and then targets them. But it's something we need to watch out for. Thank you. Our last speaker this evening is Paul DeSlover. In 1965, Paul was 17 when he met a young woman on a blind date at Art's Nut House in Monroe, Michigan. By the time he polished off a quarter pound of pistachios and a fudge brownie washed down with a vanilla shake, he had his first girlfriend. She was sweet 16. Life was good. Paul DeSlover. So it was now 1967. I was 19 years old, and I was stationed in Iceland with the US Air Force. I was eight months into my 12-month assignment when I unexpectedly was chosen to travel with a search and rescue unit that was rotating their crew back to Selfridge Air Force Base in Michigan. I would, had to be ready the next morning to leave, so I had no time to contact any of my family, but I was thrilled that I was going to be going home to see my parents and particularly my girlfriend. So the next day, as we winged our way west on at C-124 Globemaster, the only thing I could think of was getting to Monroe and seeing my girlfriend and surprising her. The whole, the whole time, since the time I had departed, she was very faithful in writing me two or three times a week and sending me many care packages with candy and gum and photographs. And so I was very excited to be able to surprise her with a short three-day visit. When I finally, <clears throat> we landed and I hitchhiked the rest of the 120 miles to Monroe and my parents, of course, were delighted and thrilled and very surprised to see me. And then I ate a quick bite, took a quick shower, changed into civilian clothes, went to Woolworths, bought a two-pound box of candy, and headed over to my girlfriend's house. As I stood there at her front door, ready to knock, I was excited beyond belief. I knocked hard. There was no response. I knocked a second time. There was no response. But out of the corner of my eye, I could see the living room curtains wiggling. So I knew someone was home. So I knocked a third time, and I waited. And the door slowly started to open. It opened about two inches, 
and I could see my girlfriend's eyes with her head tilted like this, looking out the door. And I said, surprise! And I handed, tried to hand her the box of candy. And she said to me, what are you doing home? I said, I wanted to surprise you. She said, I do not like surprises, and slammed the door. I stood there on the porch for a couple of minutes in shock and bewildered, and then I turned and walked back to my car and drove home. When I got there, I went straight to the phone in the hallway, and I called her. The phone rang a few times, and finally she answered, and I said, it's me, and she hung up. I waited a few more minutes and tried her again. And this time, when she answered, she said, don't keep calling me. I said, OK. And she hung up. I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. So I just sat there for probably 20 minutes or a half hour. My mom saw and heard this. And she, I'm sure, figured out what was going on. But she didn't say anything. So then I had the idea of calling my girlfriend's best friend, the young girl who had introduced us at Arts Net House. I thought, surely she would know what's going on. So I called her. She was not surprised by my call, which surprised me. <laughs> and I started to tell her what had transpired. And she said, yes, I know. I just talked to her. And she said, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but she has a new boyfriend. He was there when you went to the house. She does not want to see you again. I was totally devastated. I said thank you and hung up. So the next two days of my leave in Michigan, I struggled to sleep at night. And during the day, I sat on the front porch on the swing. I hauled the record player out from inside and I played over and over again on the 45 copy I had of Happy Together by the Turtles. <laughs> it was our theme song. And while doing that, I proceeded to eat the chocolate. I was despondent, but I was frugal. Sometimes I couldn't even tell what piece of candy was coming next because through the tears, I had trouble reading the chart on the inside cover of the chocolate box. Periodically, my concerned dear mother would come out, sit on the porch swing with me, put her arm around me and say, Paul, it's going to be all right. On the second day of this, she added, you really shouldn't be eating just chocolate. Is there something you would like me to make for your final dinner home? So there I was, not knowing exactly what to do and how, it was, how I was going to survive this. I should have had some inkling that our relationship was on thin ice because in my senior year book, a year prior, I gave her the book so that she could write in it, which was a traditional thing to do. And one of the things she wrote was, when I first met you, at Art's Nuthouse on our blind date, I thought, blah. 
am I supposed to like that? <laughs> that was in capital letters. It was underlined three times, and it was followed by two question marks. Yeah, I didn't get it. <laughs> so fast forward 49 years, and I was friended on Facebook by a friend of hers from high school, a woman that I knew in high school also. And I told her I was coming to Michigan to be with my mother, and she said, well, why don't we get together and go to lunch? I said, sure. So we did, and we talked about the old times and fun together. And finally, after about two hours of talking, she said, you know, I still feel really bad about the way you were dumped when you were in the service. And I said, uh, 49 years ago. I'm over it. It was puppy love. You know, no big deal. She said, no, I, I can't help it. I feel really bad about that. And I said, it's, no, it's, it's okay. I don't feel bad at all. She said, with utmost sincerity, if it's any consolation, the guy that was there that day, she eventually married him, and he has a big nose, too. <laughs> I said, um, after I got done laughing, I said, well, I may have lost, but now I know what kept me in the game for two years. <laughs> and she said, what? I said, well, you know, that, that solves one mystery, but it creates another mystery. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I wonder what the meaning of that was in my high school yearbook. And she just looked at me quizzically like, what are you talking about? So I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking, Hmm, I wonder if it was my ears. <laughs> we finished our lunch, hugged each other, and parted. And I probably, at least I hope, not to see any of them ever again. <laughs> I got my hair, got my head, got my brain, got my ears, got my eyes, got my nose, got my mouth. I've got my smile. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on March 8, 2017. The theme for the evening was Rude Awakenings. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, Kristen Stouter, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Taylor Vidic. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. I've got life. I've got my, 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 my.